in your Bibles, if you have them this morning, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to look at one verse. I know some of you get really scared when I say we're going to look at one verse. That does not usually mean it's a short sermon. (laughs) I just want to start off by saying this. Valuable surprises are discovered in the most unlikely places. Valuable surprises are discovered in the most unlikely places. Consider, for example, this true story that you may or may not have heard of before. It actually appeared in the San Antonio Express News some years ago. It's a story that detailed the account of a man in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, who went to a flea market and found a picture frame he liked, and inside the frame was a dusty old print of a country church. And even though the picture was torn and faded... The guy really liked the frame that it was in, and you couldn't beat the price. It was $4, so he bought it, took it home. And when he got home that day, he opened it up, and he started to remove the print from the frame. And as he did, out dropped a neatly folded piece of paper. Now, he picked up this new discovery, carefully unfolded it, and to his absolute amazement, realized that it was a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now, you can check this out on Snopes. It's true. What everyone, including himself, thought was a $4 painting at a flea market actually contained one of the original 500 official copies of the Declaration of Independence printed July 4th, 1776. Only 24 copies were in existence at the time of this find, 24, three of which were privately owned. Sotheby's not only confirmed the document as authentic, but also as one of the three finest known. And it was sold at an auction on June 4th in 1991 for $2.42 million. In June of 2000, it was sold again in an online auction for $8.14 million. Who would have considered that? A priceless document in a worthless frame. Had the flea market shopper not discovered this hidden treasure behind that faded old painting, or had he simply thrown the old folded piece of paper away, he would never have been affected by the joy and the excitement of that discovery, right? Valuable surprises are discovered in the most unlikely places, but When we are not profoundly affected by the treasure in our grasp, said one person, apathy and mediocrity are inevitable. Now, some of you know that one of my most treasured joys as a child growing up was being surprised. I love surprises, and I still do. And so it will not surprise you, therefore, that Cracker Jacks are very important to me as a child. I remember with childish delight the excitement I would experience when my dad would bring home a box of Cracker Jacks for me. And I would love to tear that box open. The first thing I would do is thrust my little fingers inside there and rummage around in the candy-coated popcorn and feel around for that telltale piece of paper that would inevitably contain some incredible little treasure that would make its home in my pants pockets for days, maybe even weeks. 
I remember the commercials on TV. Do you? I remember the jingle, candy-coated popcorn, peanuts, and a prize. That's what you get with Cracker Jacks, right? And the prize was the thing. That's what sold the product. And to my recollection, there weren't a whole lot of other products on the market that came with a prize at that time. Somewhere along the line, however, I grew up and Cracker Jacks gave way to other things. And I guess for me, as for most of us, we just grew out of it. That tiny treasure of my early years doesn't quite hold the magic that it used to. Again, when we are not profoundly affected by the treasure in our grasp, apathy and mediocrity are the inevitable result. Sadly now, that's a statement that can be applied not just to nostalgic memories of childhood, but also to the things that we are involved in every single day of our lives, like a marriage, a job, certain friendships, etc., etc., etc. In today's text, we find a spiritually convicting application of this disturbing truth. We can easily apply that same principle to our relationship to Christ unless we are profoundly affected by the treasure in our grasp, i.e., Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, our practice of following him will be marked by apathy as well as by mediocrity. Valuable surprises are discovered in the most unlikely places. And to a child, uncovering the prize in a box of candy is an exciting thing. And to an adult, the discovery of a precious piece of antiquity in a once-in-a-million thrill... But the ultimate joy, the most profound excitement that you and I could ever imagine is the discovery that by receiving Jesus Christ, anyone can become a child of God. Amen? A citizen of God's kingdom, forgiven of all guilt, released of all condemnation, spiritually rich beyond our wildest dreams, such a discovery should profoundly affect us. Is that right? So much so that we would gladly give anything to gain it. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't you? Can I let you in on a little secret? That treasure is readily available. And many of you have already discovered it. However, the unfortunate reality is that so many people remain unaffected by this treasure that is within their grasp. That's hard to imagine. Here's a penetrating question that we should all consider. Is it possible that you and I have begun to take our salvation for granted? Is it possible? Because if so, I'm certain it is Jesus' desire that our passion and appreciation be revived concerning this incomparable treasure that we possess. That is what distinguishes true followers of Christ from superficial followers of Christ. Sincere disciples are forever affected by the treasure of Jesus and their lives are never the same after that discovery. Anybody want to testify to that? Amen. They're never the same. Finding this treasure of a relationship with Christ is life 
changing. Listen to how Jesus described it in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors, has a way of getting right to the heart of this truth in everyday terms, and that's why I love the way he retells this parable. In his book, Abba's Child, he puts it like this. It appears to be just another long day of manual labor in the weary rhythm of time, but suddenly the ox stops. The peasant drives his plowshare deeper into the earth as he usually does, and he turns over furrow after furrow until he hears the sound of a harsh metallic noise. The ox stops pawing. The man pushes the primitive plow aside. And with his bare hands, he furiously digs up the earth. The dirt flies everywhere. And at last, the peasant spies a handle and he lifts this large earthen pot out of the ground. Trembling, he yanks the handle off the pot and he is stunned. And he lets out a scream, yes! Like Clayton does. And it makes the ox blink because it's so loud and abrupt. The heavy pot is filled to the rim with coins and jewels and silver and gold. And he rifles through the treasure and he let, letting the precious coins and the rare earrings and sparkling diamonds. And they all go through his fingers. Peasant looks around to make sure nobody's watching. Satisfied he's alone, he heaps the dirt over the earthen pot. And he plows a shallow furrow over the surface, lays a large stone at the spot that he found it as a marker, and then he resumes his work plowing the field. Now, he's a deeply affected by this splendid find. A single thought absorbs him. In fact, it so controls him that he can no longer work undistracted by day or sleep undisturbed by night. The field must become his property. So as a day laborer, it's impossible for him to take possession of that, fee, that land, of the buried treasure. Where is he going to get the money to buy the field? Caution and discretion fly out the window. He sells everything that he owns. He gets a fair price for his hut and the few sheep that he owns. He turns to relatives and friends and acquaintances and borrows significant funds from them. And the owner of the field is delighted with the fancy price that he offers him. And he sells to the peasant without a second thought. Now this new owner's wife, she's beside herself. His sons are inconsolable. His friends reproach him. His neighbors wag their heads and they say, he stayed out too long in the sun. And still they're baffled with this man's prodigious energy. And the peasant remains unruffled, even joyful in the face of widespread opposition. He knows he has stumbled upon an extraordinarily profitable transaction and rejoices at the thought of the payoff. This treasure, which apparently had been buried in the field for security before the last war and whose owner had not survived, returns a hundredfold on the price that he paid for it. He pays off all his debts. He builds the equivalent of a mansion in Malibu. And the lowly peasant is now a man whose fortune is made, envied by his enemies, congratulated by his friends, and secure for the rest of his life. That's Brendan Manning's take on this parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, 
is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys a field. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything in your life today that you found that you would give everything you have in exchange for? Everything. Recently, I was in a, an antique store up in Strong, and some of you know that I have a Coke collection. I collect Coke memorabilia, specifically bottles, old bottles. And uh, I was walking, rummaging through the store, and in the back of the store, in the furthest corner in the back, in this little curio cabinet, tucked away behind some other bottles, was a Coke bottle that I have been looking for since the day that I started collecting. So I pulled it out, and I looked at the price, and I was unwilling to pay it. I went to the man, I made an offer. He came back with an offer. I came back with another offer, and he rejected it. So I put it back on the shelf and left. I wasn't willing to give that much for that bottle. Is there anything in your life that you would be willing to give everything you own for? Jesus spoke this parable to make one main point. One of the key principles in interpreting parables is to realize that the details surrounding the main point are not the important thing. That's what you need to realize in interpreting parables. The main point is what's important. So let me give you a priceless principle about interpreting parables in the Gospels. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You say that? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. This parable doesn't deal with the ethics of the man's business deal. And I know you're all thinking in your mind, well, that doesn't sound quite right. He hid the treasure, went back, and he deceived the owner of the field and bought the field. Should have told him about it, right? Now, the ethics and the honesty, or why he was even in the field, they're superfluous to the main point that Jesus is trying to make here. It's designed to emphasize one thing, that the kingdom of God is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing everything that you have for it. Period. Disclaimer. Now, to be fair, there are others who may see a different main point to Jesus' parable, but I believe that the central theme here is that nothing in all of the universe, no matter how high you stack it, no wealth, nothing can compare to the priceless value of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is what every disciple of Jesus Christ is involved in. Is part of. And with that in mind, I've uncovered about a half dozen things in this text about the priceless treasure of the kingdom of God. Number one, the kingdom is not inherently visible. Look at that verse again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. It's not readily visible. The value of discipleship, the value of our salvation is not always apparent to people, is it? It's not obvious. Jesus compared this kingdom to a treasure that was hidden. As odd as that sounds, in Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for people to put their most prized possessions and valuable possessions in the ground. As I researched this, 
I discovered that although banks did exist, they were not like our banks today. Ordinary people commonly used the ground as a depository for their most prized possessions. And Jesus referred negatively to an example of this practice in the parable of the talents as he rebuked the worthless servant who had hid his talent in the ground in Matthew 25. You remember that? But much like today, ancient Palestine was a war-torn, ravaged country. And due to those raids, many people protected their valuables by burying them, concealing them in the ground, away from the plundering armies. Jewish historian Josephus writes of such common practices, actually, and the result was that some of the fields in and around Palestine had many such treasures hidden beneath them. Jesus used this real-life practice to highlight a spiritual truth. When he told this story, he captured their attention. He told the kind of story that people would immediately identify with. Today, he may have used the analogy of someone hitting the lottery or finding a copy of the Declaration of Independence at a yard sale. The truth is, is that Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God is a valuable, priceless, precious treasure but it's not always visible. Its worth sometimes is unrealized and it lies dormant, just out of sight, just beneath the surface. And not only that, but it's actually an unsought treasure. People don't seek after it. Many people just aren't looking for it. Eternal truth of significant value is rarely found on a superficial level, by the way. For some people, it takes a lifetime of seeking it. For others, however, like this man, it has just happened upon in the faithful practice of everyday life. The kingdom is not inherently visible. Number two, the kingdom is often inadvertently uncovered. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. He found it. Notice Jesus' words. It's sometimes an unexpected discovery. The emphasis here is not so much that the man discovers the treasure by chance as it is the fact that he discovers it in the midst of his daily work. Hear what I'm saying? He discovers it in the midst of his everyday life. He wasn't looking for it, yet he was attentive enough to notice it when he came upon it. I want to ask you something. Are you sensitive enough to realize or recognize the valuable spiritual treasures that you could uncover every single day of your life as you go about your regular routine of life? Do you see God in the mundane things? Or are we running so fast that it's just all a blur? The great theologian Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers fame, and I just went to see that movie about Mr. Rogers, just an unbelievable documentary of his life. He said this, he said, life is deep and simple. What our society gives us is shallow and complicated. The older I get, the more impressed I am with simplicity and silence. I gotta tell you, the speed of life my friends, is out of control. Out of control. Nothing is slow and easy anymore. 
Daily living is computerized, it's complex, it's operating on screech, and as a result, our interaction with the things of life and the things of God have become extremely, extremely superficial. Douglas Gruthius, associate professor at Denver Seminary, addressed this speed trap in a past issue of Moody Magazine. It's an article called From Hyperculture to Shalom. I just want to quote a couple of excerpts from it. He says, Americans crave and live on speed. Computers get faster. Cultural trends come and go in a flash. Short, brisk sermons are recommended for people with short attention spans. We dare not waste time, and we must always save time. And Professor Stephen Bartman identifies this infatuation with speed as hyperculture. Through it all, we may lose a sense of shalom, God's peace. That's right, isn't it? Speed is beneficial when being faster saves lives or improves life. Ambulance services should be quick. Yet our culture is accelerating in unhealthy ways, he says. A few Americans have even opted for drive-through funeral parlors. Oh, yeah. The corpse is behind a glass and a guest book is in, within the driver's reach. Grieving isn't fun. Let's speed it up. Speed it up. Get it out of the way. Be done with it. Get it over with. Move on. And to tell you, over the last 30 years of being a pastor, I've seen that trend take place. The pace of television and movie images just watch that. Radically increased. James Gleick notes in Faster that no matter how fast the movie goes these days, it's not fast enough. And yet they increase the length of them. Faster images, but longer movies. But he says the mind cannot keep pace with the medium. The swiftness of video excites the senses while dulling the soul. Humans were not created to assimilate images this rapidly. Film historian Annette Instorf notes there's a kind of mindlessness. The viewer is invited to absorb images without digesting them. And these examples point out the pathology of velocity. Our mental and moral lives become debased through excess speed. We may become addicted to rapidity without counting the costs. Superficiality, impatience, anger, frustration. When life becomes a blur, it can't be lived well before God or before others. Sometimes slower is better. It's richer. It's deeper. Instead of mini-sermons to fit our mini-attention spans, we need to develop our powers of concentration so that we can enjoy longer and deeper messages, he says. Absorbing biblical truth cannot be rushed. The scripture says and calls us to wait for the Lord. To still our souls. And as we still our souls and look upward and slow down, we begin to find meaning that is missed when life is an adrenaline-driven blur. In all things, we should cut against this grain of hyperculture and learn to hear God say, be still and know that I am God. It's a pretty sad thing, you know, when we think that the only place that we can 
discover God or we can see God and to get close to God and feel his presence is in church on Sunday or in a designated holy place or on certain religious occasions. Friends, discipleship is not about two hours a week at church. It's not. If it is, you are seriously shortchanging yourself. Quite frankly, it's walking with Jesus and uncovering the wealth of his treasures every single place we go, every single day of our lives. Now all you got to do is read something by Brother Lawrence, right? The 17th century mystic spent much of his working life in a monastery kitchen amidst dirty dishes and discovered this valuable treasure. And this is what he said. His words reveal his heart. He said, I felt Jesus Christ as close to me in the kitchen as I ever did at the Blessed Sacrament. Unquote. And we need to come to each one of us an understanding of this truth. And what that is saying to us is that we need to learn to train our senses to pay attention. To pay attention to God. Someone has rightly said we encounter God in the ordinariness of life, not in the search for spiritual highs and extraordinary mystical experiences, but in our simple presence in life. There's a saying that has historically been attributed to Jesus that is found in some early church literature which says, quote, raise the stone and thou shalt find me, cleave the wood and I am there. The treasure's there. It just needs to be uncovered. As common as this burying practice was in Palestine to actually find a treasure, that was uncommon. So once in a thousand lifetimes, Occurrence. It just didn't happen all the time. Elsewhere, Jesus also emphasized the incredible blessedness and rarity of discovering the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this very disturbingly, by the way, for most of us, if you really get into it. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. That's scary. Don't overlook the significance of Jesus' words in this short parable here in Matthew chapter 13. To stumble upon this incomparable treasure of salvation to become part of the kingdom is nothing to scoff at. It has God's sovereign fingerprints all over it. It means that God's leading you to it. If you have come to Christ in this way, which is the way I came to Christ, I wasn't looking for it. God just opened my eyes one day. So if you came to Christ this way, you should be, as I should be, absolutely awestruck by the grace of it all. It's nothing short of amazing. We should be overwhelmed with the thought of it as this man in the story was. Which brings up the third point, the kingdom of God is the source of incomparable joy. Philippians 4 verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. I have to ask myself as I'm asking you, is our greatest joy rooted in the fact that you are a child of God? 
a citizen of his kingdom. Is that your greatest joy? Jesus said that upon finding this treasure, this man was overcome with joy and he was so excited that he went and sold everything he owned to buy this field. His joy propelled him. It compelled him. It sustained him when his family and friends thought he was nuts. It drove him on to never lose sight and never back off from this goal of getting that field. He knew his life would never be the same after that discovery and there was nothing in the world that would stop him from pursuing it to the very end. Did you hear that? Nothing in this world would deter him from the joy of that treasure. Is that the kind of joy that's propelling us through life? I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I get so caught up in the everyday life stuff, the worldly stuff, the little joys that we have in this life, which are great, and God gave them to us to enjoy, but those should not become the idols. Those should not become our chief joy, should they? What about through your painful circumstances? Does this joy of being part of the kingdom propel you through those? Does it drive you to endure your emotional setbacks and physical sufferings? Do you know that the writer of Hebrews said was the major factor in Jesus' enduring of the cross? What was it? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy set before him. What joy? The joy of obtaining the throne. The joy of knowing that you and you and you and me would be redeemed by his sacrifice and that we would be there with him. Listen to me. As a child of the kingdom, if you are saved by grace through faith, the same joy of sharing that inheritance awaits you. Have you recognized that your salvation is of such worth that there is nothing on the face of this earth that can deter you from obtaining that inheritance, nothing will take it away. Biblical scholar Joachim Jeremiah put it this way. He said, when that great joy surpasses all measure, seizes a man, it carries him away, penetrates his inmost being, subjugates his mind. All else seems valueless compared to that surpassing worth. No price is too great to pay. The unreserved surrender of of what is most valuable becomes a matter of course. The decisive thing in the parable is not what the man gives up, but his reason for doing so. The overwhelming experience of what he discovered. Thus it is with the kingdom of God. The effect of the joyful news is overpowering. It fills our hearts with gladness. It changes the whole direction of our life. It produces the most wholehearted self-sacrifice. It's wonderful, my friends, to be seized by the power of a great affection, of becoming born again to a living hope. But the upshot of all of that is to become seized by the power of a great joy in receiving such an incomparable treasure. Amen? Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy might be made full. People in the world are breaking their necks for this kind of joy. That's why they're addicted to so many things. The joy of knowing Jesus Christ is the ultimate joy you will ever have the privilege of experiencing. You want to be addicted to something? Be addicted to Jesus. 
And we, Christ's disciples, should be the most joyful-filled people around, right? For why? Because we've discovered the treasure. Peter, unable to restrain his pen, broke forth um, with verbal praise in the opening verses of his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Many of you have memorized this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible, it says. Inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. One of our greatest needs in our lives today, greatest needs in my life, I'll admit it, is to discover the incomparable joy of the kingdom of God. But that will never happen until we come to terms with the fact that, fourthly, the kingdom is individually appropriated. Individually appropriated. Verse 44 again of chapter 13. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he hid it again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Now, some people get all wrinkled up here about the ethics of this guy, right? Was it right for him to hide the treasure and then buy the field without disclosing it to the owner? Was he being dishonest? Again, please remember that Jesus is not using the parable to make a point about ethics. Neither is he condoning unethical behavior, however. But just for those who won't be able to sleep tonight unless they have a satisfactory answer, I'm going to give you one. It was perfectly ethical and legal for the man to do what he did. Rabbinic law was quite clear, and let me quote it for you. Quote, if a man finds scattered fruit or scattered money, these belong to the finder, unquote. He had a right to what he, was, what he found. The mere fact that he purchased the entire field instead of taking the money and running testifies to his integrity, right? He could have just taken the money and run. But again, that's not Jesus' point. The main point is that the treasure was of such value to the man who found it that he was willing to give everything that he owned for it. Again, do not read something into the parable that's just not there. Jesus is not saying that we can buy our way in or work our way into the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. By what right do you and I have to enter into God's kingdom? Our only right of entrance is that Jesus has made it possible by his, his voluntary sacrifice on the cross and through our personal response to him of faith in Jesus' righteousness and in his forgiveness. That's how we get in. Salvation is a free gift, right? It's by grace, through faith, and it's a gift of God. Not a result of work, as a result of works. 
The only way you can purchase it, my friends, is if you want to call it that, and I wouldn't even call it purchase. It's to place your faith in Jesus Christ and realize that it is only by his grace that we can even place our faith in Jesus Christ and enter into the kingdom. No one can buy it. You can't. Having said that, we must realize also that Jesus was very forceful in pointing out that although salvation is free, it's not cheap. And it's far from easy. There may be some incredible personal sacrifices that must be made on our part before other commitments uh, can give way to the priorities of God. That's why in Luke 14, 26 through 33, he warned people to count the cost of following him. Let me read that to you. In Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid foundation and has not been able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began, began to build and was not able to finish. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, he concludes, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What's Jesus saying? That you have to go out right now and sell everything that you own and give it all away in order to be his disciple? No, the implication is nothing should come between us and Jesus and what he asks of us. If he asks you to do that, then we should be able to obey and say yes. But he might not ask that. Thing is, is you can't purchase a place in the kingdom. But it's worth all that we have to give for it. Amen? Jesus gave all that he is, that by grace through faith we might possess all that he has. And for some of us, he might require all that we have before we can truly discover that joy. The Apostle Paul's view is a perfect example in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I mean, Hebrews 11 speaks of that. Moses understood that, right? In Hebrews 11 and verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. See, this treasure of the kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship, Jesus says. Becoming a disciple of the kingdom, in other words, is worth it all. Dominic quoted a verse this morning. 
He didn't know that I was going to quote it in this message. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Throw the diet away. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why? Because fifthly, the kingdom is of inestimable value. It's worth any price. The man goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Someone once wrote, the Christ within who is our hope of glory is not a matter of theological debate or philosophical speculation. He is not a hobby, a part-time project, a good theme for a book, or a last resort when all human effort fails. He is our life, the most real fact about us. He is the power and the wisdom of God dwelling in us. He is our treasure, and because that is true, there is one more principle implied by this parable, and it's the last one, which says the kingdom is of incalculable urgency. Urgency. What do I mean by that? Well, let's put it in modern day terms, okay? Put yourself in this position. Let's just for the fun of it, transpose Jesus' parable of the hidden treasure into a modern key. On January 16th, 2016, John and Lisa Robinson of Tennessee, Maureen Smith of Florida, and May and Marvin Acosta of California won $1.6 billion in the Powerball lottery. Yep. That's over one, that's, that's over one and a half billion Billion, not million, dollars. Split three ways. The largest lottery jackpot in U.S. history. Now, although it was split three ways, would it be presumptuous to say that the winning of the Powerball Prize awakened an indescribable passion in their souls? You think they were a little bit joyful? The identical passion of this man in the parable? Now, although it was split three ways, none of the winners could complain too much about sharing the record-shattering jackpot. The Robinsons had 180 days after the drawing to claim their prize. Maureen Smith had the same 180 days, unless she opted for one lump sum, in which case she only had 60 days to claim it. They came forward very soon after the drawing, as probably you and I would. Claim their winnings. May and Marvin Acosta, however, waited over six months to finally claim their prize. Now, fortunately for them, in California, winners have a year from the date of the drawing to come forward. But the big question in my mind when I read this was, why would anyone wait Six months to receive such a life-changing treasure. Why? 
Supposedly, they were assembling a team of advisors. But let me ask you this. Suppose some tragic accident occurred and they had both perished in a plane crash. Suppose they got so caught up in their work life or so distracted by a sports addiction that they lost all track of time and they got so bogged down with conflicting worldly advice from these advisors that the 365 days expired and they failed to claim their prize. What would our verdict be on that couple? Foolish. Irresponsible. Now let me ask you this question on a spiritual level. What servitude, what obsession, what humanistic reasoning are you following or allowing to distract you from claiming the treasure of Jesus Christ? Because you could go out tomorrow and die in a plane crash and it would be too late and you wouldn't be able to claim your winnings. You see, as someone has said, whatever the addiction, be it a smothering relationship or a dysfunctional dependence or mere laziness or our capacity to be affected by Christ is numbed when we are not profoundly affected by the treasure in our grasp, apathy and mediocrity are inevitable. So here's the conclusion. There is an urgency involved in renewing our passion for this treasure. There is an urgency involved for those of you that have not found this treasure yet. Sometimes I think we're afraid that we've invented the story of God's love. Let me tell you, we haven't. Jesus' words are not an invention of man. They are an invitation from God. You say, I am rich, the scripture says. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. And also buy white garments so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And buy ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I am the one who corrects, Jesus says, and disciplines everyone I love. Be diligent then and turn from your indifference. Look here, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear me calling, open the door. I will come in. I will come in and I will share a meal with you as friends. See, when a person realizes the precious and priceless value of a personal relationship with Jesus, nothing is too much to give. No price is too high to pay. No sacrifice is too painful to make. No request too outrageous to grant. No possession too personal to relinquish in the face of a never-ending relationship with our Savior. In that light, it follows that there should also be no pain so powerful, no addiction so binding, no bitterness so incapacitating, no scar so debilitating, and no sin so separating that we would not sell it all, rather give it all away for an eternal promise of love and life with Jesus. Yet... There may be some of you sitting right here in this room right now or in that room out there, and I know there will be people listening to this message on the radio someday that have not done that. Do you realize what Jesus offers? The relationship that Jesus desires with you doesn't cost 
an exorbitant amount of money. It doesn't require our signature in blood. It doesn't even demand that we become perfect or sinless or spotless or pretty. He just wants us to trade in our rags for some new clothes. His clothes. His clothing of righteousness. Think of it. We trade in our sin for his salvation. Our shortcomings for his righteousness. Our curse of death for his promise of life. Our insecurity for his assurance. That's what he offers. That is the treasure. Is it yours? Way, way back when I first got saved. Back in the 80s, early 80s. There was a song that I encountered as a new Christian. And the line went something like this, Jesus is my treasure, the reason that I'm living, and he'll still be the reason when I die. Can you say that? Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that everyone in this room right now, in this place, can say that. Holy Spirit, come with your power. Come with conviction and fire and grace to those who don't know you today. Let them reach out to you in faith and pour forth into them the greatest joy in the world of knowing you intimately and having a relationship with you. And then let us go from here rejoicing and celebrating in the treasure that we've found. But Father, unlike the man in the parable, let us not hide it. Let us bring it forth to all those that we encounter so that they might know what the treasure is as well. Let Jesus be our treasure, the reason that we live, that he might be the reason when we die. For his sake and in his name that I ask it, amen.